millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Howdy, folks. Welcome back. This is part two of my conversation with David Lindley. If you've not heard part one yet, make sure you go back and check it out. It's sitting right there from one week ago, part one of my my conversation with David Lindley. Listen to that first and then hop in right here. This is part two, picking up right where we left off last week. Enjoy the second half of my conversation with David Lindley right now. Tell me a bit about your guitar tone of that particular era. Like what kind of steel lap steels you're using and, and amps and if there's any effects involved and stuff? Well, uh, the amps for the most part were Dumble. Okay. Uh, I, I used a, I used an overdrive special for the, um, for the lap steel. Okay. And, and there was a national lap steel and then I used uh Rickenbacker lap steels. And then I, I got turned on to Supro, yeah. which was, which was, a subsidiary of, of national yeah. Falco. And I used those, the Supros with the, with the uh, legs on them. You mm-hmm. could stand up and play, you know, and then I used for a guitar. I, I would use a, a Dan Electro curly horn, uh, guitar, two pickup guitar, yeah. the kind of that came in the case that had the amp in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got one of those actually. Those are great. Oh yeah, those are really, really good. And we're using. The, so, did you use the case amp on the record? No, no, I didn't use the case amp. I, those are pretty I gnarly. Went for, yeah, they, they're pretty, pretty gnarly. I, I, I would. Um, I use mostly the um, black Fender basement. Okay. Pre CVS, I use a black uh, Fender basement head, and I I plug it into a uh, an AC thirty. Uh, Vox AC30 bottom that had okay. these two special speakers in there that were really good. I used those and in uh, or a Dumble bottom which had two Altex. Was Howard Dumble just a guy that you knew building crazy amps at that point? Like obviously he wasn't yeah. the, the mega crazy elusive superstar amp guy now where his amps cost a hundred grand like he was probably just a guy at that point right yeah he was a, just a guy yeah that's <laughs> yeah the amp guy in santa cruz okay and then he moved down to sun valley and yeah. the prices went up you see they were really good was he like experimenting with amps on you at that point like was he just getting into building well, yeah, he was just starting to build stuff, and he would listen to people play and how they would play, and then he would make them an amp, you know. Right. And uh, and it worked out really well because he was a guitar player, so he could he'd have he come over, yeah. 
you'd come over, you bring your guitar and, and he'd listen to how you played and, and, and check out the pickups on the guitar, see how they worked. And, you know, uh, um, say, okay, well, let's see, we'll put this kind of preamp in there and see how that works. And, and, you know, he said, well, okay, I'll, I'll build you one. So I, I would, I remember going in there with a black face basement and I said, and I had another device and I said, I want to put this device in this amp. Yeah. Okay. At, at the time I was using the black face basement with a, a FET circuit in front of it. Okay. And I, I, I was experimenting with preamps that would overdrive the preamp in a, in a black basement. Okay. So I, I, tried all different kinds of things, wool and sack, tape recorders and, and, uh, and cool. Tanberg tape recorders. And I, I checked them out and I, I put them into this. I said, Oh, this is good. This sounds really good. And, and then he would, he said, yeah, that's a good preamp. And he would put, he put all this stuff together and, and the, the overdrive special <clears throat> came out of that. So you're kind of, you're kind of responsible for the overdrive special. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, you know, people in those days were experimenting with all kinds of, of uh, preamps and all kinds of, you know, things from, from uh, projectors and, and, uh, Bell and Howells, you know, yeah, Bell and Howell tape recorders and, and all those different things. And then you put them in front of something that was pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And, a, uh, and then I discovered a Variac. Oh. And a Variac, yeah, you, you take those things and you, you turn them up until it was 121, you know, coming out of the wall. And you go, okay, that's good. Okay, and the tubes are glowing a certain color orange you want the tubes to glow orange and then you want to have just a touch of blue in there so they all that sounds good because a black face basement was susceptible to the power coming out of the wall the sound that would come out of that and and that's one of the reasons i got the overdrive special was to kind of counteract that effect and and i got very axe and i got um you know, changing from, you know, I was obsessed with Fox AC 30 amps and they, they didn't run on, on 60 cycles. They ran on 50 cycles. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I said, I, what I want is a, is a cycle generator. I want, I want to be able to take the power out of the wall and convert it back down to, to where it's supposed to be down there at 220. Yeah. And on uh, uh, 50 cycles, and he says, oh, that's, that, that's $20,000. No, you can't have that. <laughs> no, you can't have that. Lindley is not going to get a cycle generator. <laughs> so, so I settled on, I said, black face basement, okay. So I put a Variac in there, and I made sure that it, w- it would stay at the same power out of the wall. Yeah. So, uh, and I'd adjust it. And, and it turns out that, that Eddie Van Halen was doing the same thing and <laughs> Billy Gibbons was doing the same thing. And we figured out that, uh, we needed a little more input yeah. to amplifiers and stuff like that. And that's and Dumble at the time was doing a, a experimentation with different amps. Mm-hmm. So I say, Oh, this is good. This sounds really good. This is what I want, you know. And I and I take it in there, and he he pushed together, and I, yeah. you know, and it turned out to be this monster. You know, amazing. Another tone, I guess, going back a year or two um, into the Jackson Brown thing, but like one of your your most famous solos, really, is is the running on empty thing, which was interesting yeah. too because it's kind of a it's like a live record but it was all new material so it's a real cool concept record um what about in, in, at that time um like what what would you have been using for the lap steel sound on those records same kind of thing or well that was a uh rickenbacker okay and that was one of those those uh bakelite bowling ball yep. plastic guitars you know yeah, and sure. and i took i I took off a couple of the covers mm-hmm. on the, the little resonation kind of chambers on there. I took a couple of those off and it sounded 
it had this sound that was that was wonderful. And I said, okay, this is good. And then I I uh, tuned it up to A. So it's real tight. Yeah, really super tight. So I tuned and Rickenbacker is a short scale. Yeah. So you can kind of do that. You can kind of, if you use the right strings and they'll last maybe three days and the first string, at least <laughs> you would, uh, you know, I had, I had a whole lot of different Rickenbackers and, and national and Supro and different, different guitars. I had a Gibson that had a brass bridge and I, I would use these different guitars and I, I had, you know, like six or seven of them. Yeah. up there at one point and I would use, they were all different tune, different versions of the same tuning. Yeah, okay. I always used the same tuning, which was a, which was like a first position E chord yeah. on a guitar. Yeah, I used that tuning, except I, I would tune it up to F, G, and then all the way up to A. Whoa, oh seriously, so it's open A tuning, but like an open D style open tuning, just tuned way the hell up. Yeah, it's the open D tuning. Yeah. It was uh, starting at the bottom was D, A, D, F sharp, A, D. The first string was D. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that's the acoustic tuning that you use. Okay. And then on electric, it was it was that same relationship. I said it was F, and then I would I have one at E, one at F, one at G, and then one at A. Oh, that is high. Yeah, that's really high, and and uh, you couldn't do it with a national because it was the scale was too long. So yeah. you do it with a Rickenbacker. You have a short scale, okay. and tune that sucker up, and it, <laughs> and it would just about ready to explode. And that's what you're hearing on there. Okay, cool. And amps and stuff like that. Were you using the dumbbells on those tours? Yeah, or? yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just plug into a foot volume control and the foot volume control into the into the uh, dumble yeah and uh, sometimes i would use uh, something in front of the the foot volume control i, I would use a purple peak or one of dan armstrong's thing or i would use a what's the purple one was that like a was that a compressor of some sort purple peaker was a nobody really knows what it was i had nine <laughs> of them <laughs> i got one left and it and it's, it's it just does something to the sound, oh, you know. Okay. It's it's basically a Stratocaster. Okay. It's it's the overtones that a Stratocaster amplifies. Okay. So you put that in there. Yeah. You put that in there and, and into the circuit, and that boy, that makes a hell of a sound. I, I think that's what I was using on running on empty was the purple beaker. Oh, okay. Wow, I got to check that out. So it's like a mystery effect. You don't even know what it does. <laughs> yeah, there were little boxes that Dan Armstrong used to make. Yeah, I remember. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I used to hang out with him. There was a, a orange squeezer. Yeah, he'd make them. So you plug them into the guitar, and then you plug your guitar cord in there, and and you turn it on, and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> They're just they were just the best, you know. And then and a lot of different effects. I used a um, um, phase shifter, MXR yeah. phase shifter, and then a, a red box. I'd use one of those uh, overdrive kind of compressor limiters, the red box MXR. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what Lowell used. He said I used to take an LA two A out of, on the road, and they they proved to be just not roadable. So he actually he said, had one in his live rig, an LA two A. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He had an LA LA two A. Said that's that sounds good, you know. So put it in the amp, put it in the in the powertrain, and and he would use that. And he said, ah, oh, this this thing just won't hold up. It's not rotable. Here's something that's better. <clears throat> and he showed me this little red box, and I said, what is that? Oh, it's an MXR uh, compressor limiter. And you put that in there, and you just adjust it around until you get the sound you want, and there you go. Yeah, so simple. Yeah, a solo. And when you go to take a solo, you just stomp on that thing. Okay. And there you go. Almost like using it just like as a as a boost pedal more than anything, but also a compressor. Yeah, it was a boost pedal, and then you you would be able to to uh, 
you know, compress it and, and uh, limit it down and, and a line level limiter, you know, like an LA, like, just like an LA-2A, essentially yeah. what it is, but, but reliable. Right. Roadworthy. Yeah, roadworthy. And, and uh, Lowell really did some experimentation before he ended up with that. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your your um, sessions have been a big part of, of your career as well. But it seems to me like maybe it's not your favorite thing to do because you've always tended to go out on the road more than be a session guy. Like, I'm pretty sure if you yeah. wanted to, you could have just stayed in L.A. and been like the session kingpin of of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, right? Yeah, I, I kind of, I decided to to go on the road. I, I, I like that interplay between the audience and the musician. I thought that was really a good thing. So I, I remember, I ran into a guy named David Cohen. Uh-huh. David David was a finger-picked guitar guy at the Ashgrove. I mean, he, he would teach classes and he'd do all kinds of stuff. And he was a great guitar player. And he, I remember talking to him and he said, you know, I, I, I decided, I decided to stay in town and be a session musician. That's what I wanted to do. And, and he would have three sessions a day and he would seven, uh, maybe five days a week or maybe six days a week. And he did like Lee Sklar. Yeah. And, and he would go do these sessions and he said, I want to go out on the road like you're doing. And can you take all my sessions? <laughs> I said, nice guy. I said, no. <laughs> yeah. And he said, oh, oh, well, you know, so he, he, he really wanted to, you, you have to kind of balance that stuff off. You know, I recorded with a lot of different uh, artists and, and, and stuff. And I, I, you know, I still playing live is the thing that uh-huh. that's really it. You know, yeah. and I, I, I decided to just keep that going and, you know, occasionally do sessions when I'm home. And In those days, like in the eighties and nineties, I would imagine you could have been doing sessions all the time and you chose not to. Oh, so yeah. what, the ones that yeah. you did do, you know, like there's so many great ones, but you did a lot of records with Linda Ronstadt and um, that, yeah. tri- that trio record with Emmylou Harris and Linda Rostant and Dolly Parton is oh, yeah. incredible yeah, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that for me is from what I can hear really. Now I might have missed something on one of the El Rayo records, but but that's the first time I ever hear you playing the Weisenborn on a record. Uh, is that true? Um, there was one El Rayo X album that had uh, it was El Rayo Live. Okay. There was a pink. Uh, it was a pink album. I don't know if I think it was released in Japan and in um, and in Europe. It was a, a pink brick wall album cover on there, and it had uh, you know all all of the information was in in uh, Sharpie, <laughs> and and it was and on that was the first Weisenborn thing. So was Weisenborn something that you just discovered later or were you always playing it and you just never recorded it? That was the first thing that was, I would say one of the first, uh, instruments that bluegrass instrument, it had bass, unlike a dobro. So, so in the, in the, I was messing around with it a little bit, you know? Yeah. When I worked at Barry and Grassmack, I saw Weisenborn uh, against the wall, and I said, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> so I picked I picked the thing up. It was this guy named Ron Middlebrook, who is uh, is a really old friend of mine. He played Rickenbacker uh, electric guitar, and he was a guitar teacher at Barry and Grassmack, and it was one of his. And I checked that thing out. I said, "Holy shit, this thing sounds really good." I, I checked it out and I went, oh, okay. You know, a little light went off in my head. I said, yeah, yeah, use this. Uh-huh. This is a great thing. So I, I kind of cataloged it. And then later on, I went out and bought one. Okay. And uh, and that's that's the acoustic version of, of the uh, lap steel. When I hear that record, the trio record with Ron, Linda Rodstadt and Dolly Parton and Emily Harris, there's a solo that you do on there that for me, like when I was learning Weisenborn and like lap steel and stuff, 
I just, I was so drawn to that solo. I think it's on To Know Him Is To Love Him. I don't know if you remember that song, doing that song or not. Yeah, I do. Okay. So to yeah. me, it sounds like you're plugged in directly. Like I don't hear any acoustic sound at all. Were you using it that way in the studio? And am, yeah. I, am I right hearing it that way? Yeah. It was a, it was a sunrise pickup. Yeah. And uh, it was George Massenberg recording that, and I uh-huh. and we plugged it in. We did. Uh, we had a microphone on it, and it, we okay. plugged it in direct. And then we had. Uh, I think there was an amp in a room. I think. Oh, okay. It, it, yeah, there was all three of them. So oh, cool. he he made he made a mixture of all three, and he said, "This is the only pickup." I've ever tried out that it will hit 26,000 cycles. <laughs> he says, I, my, my uh, parametric equalizer actually works on this instrument. So we'll make use of that. So, and it, and it really did those old sunrise pickups. They had the, they had 26 K in there all the way up. Yeah. Up into Dogland. Yeah, that's up there, man. 26. I don't know if, like, can we even hear 26? I guess yes, George Massenburg yes, can. Yeah, yeah we okay. can. Yeah, Massenburg, at least he could, you know. <laughs> I mean, I was on my way downhill about that point, you know. Okay. Um, and so, like, on a on a session like that, would you, like, that was big time in those days. Like, that was as big as it gets for, like, pop that's as, that's as big as it gets. Um, yeah. Were you doing those solos and things as overdubs on tracks that were already there? No. Sometimes I would do it at the time, you oh, know? Okay. Yeah. And, and then, then Linda would say, oh, you can do better than that. And, really? And, yeah, oh, yeah. And then Dolly oh. would chime and say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. What was the dynamic like with those three? Because, I mean, if they were actually in the same room recording at the same time, that must have been a total trip, man. Those are like two it of was, the greatest singers ever. Oh yeah, it was fabulous. They they figured out how to do it, and uh, and they they would practice. It, it was constant doing stuff. Uh-huh. You know, we were in there, and they they would work on tunes in another room. You know, while we were learning the song, mm-hmm. and getting ready to record, and 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 then we would record the track with uh, and one of them would come out and sing the song so he would know what it was like and and yeah. maybe keep that maybe keep that take yeah. and then add the two harmonies onto that and but it was, that was one method and there was you know a dozen methods of recording these songs because they're they're all pros I mean, they've been they've been recording stuff and doing you know making albums and stuff for years. Dolly Parton, you know, yeah. for yeah. one, <clears throat> you know, Linda Ronstadt, is, you know, she came out of the womb singing, and, and Emmy Lou Harrison. Oh, forget it. Yeah, it was it was it was fabulous, and it was the is one of those times where you know you know make a mental note of this because this this only happens once. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I I I did that. You know, I got to hang out with with uh, all these great musicians. And, and um, a uh, couple others that that come to mind, like so as we as we mentioned, like you kind of just left that life behind a little bit and, and turned a bunch of stuff down, but, but you did play on records with Bob Dylan and, and I know you played on like a Curtis Mayfield record. Do you have a, a oh, favorite yeah. session or two that you could tell me that, that really sticks in your mind as being like super inspiring and just a great experience? There was one, the people get ready. There's a training coming with Curtis uh-huh. Mayfield. That was on the Sunday's program was David Sanborn's program. Oh yeah. And he, and he had played sax with James Taylor, so I got to know him really well. And uh, and and he got a TV program. He says, "Come on, TV and and play some songs." And Curtis Mayfield is going to be on there too. <laughs> so I said, "Oh boy, yeah, oh boy, I'm there." So I flew to New York and 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 did that. It was fourteen hour session. <clears throat> and. People get ready. There's a train to come. And Curtis Mayfield says, uh, "You want to play on this?" I said, "Are oh, you bet? <laughs> I'll do that." And he said, "He said this. That's uh, yeah." So let me hear. It. Let me hear what you got on uh, on lap steel. You know, uh-huh. up on legs, lap steel up on legs. And he says, "That's the same tuning I use." No way. Yeah, I. So- it was a. <clears throat> it was an F tuning. And he said, this song, 
is an F. Crazy. So I said, I said, oh, that's really good. This guy can play <laughs> all my stuff. And he said, oh. I said, play, let me hear what that sounds like. And he said, this is good. This is a good thing. So we did that song. Uh-huh. And he turns around to me. Curtis Mayfield turns around to me in the middle of the song. And he says, play the solo, David. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Wait. No, 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 that was it. I said, and and there was this big neon sign that came, and we did it with an audience there. There was an audience sitting in bleachers up there. Okay. <clears throat> and and this, this sign came on in between me and the audience that was in the bleachers. It was a neon sign that said, don't screw up. <laughs> Really? Yes. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and it was, I and it was good. It was a good solo too. You know, I, it was. You know, he liked it. That was the main thing. I mean, all, throughout all this time, terrifying. It was terrifying, but it was one of those things. You know, I said, if I'm going to go down, you know, 11 million people going to watch this thing. Yeah. I, if I'm going to go down, I'm going down in flames. Yeah, man. Go down in style. That's it. So <laughs> I, I said, okay, here we go. So I played the solo and it turned out really good. He loved it. He thought it was good. Amazing. And then I, I yeah. And, and, and all, all that, uh, and then I figured out it was an old thing. I'd been doing that all along. All of, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that, that mindset going in there, playing the solo you know, people will remember this sound, so you better make it good. Yeah. So I will, you know, and I, but that moment, that was a big thing, because all this stuff, you know, afterwards came in there. During the solo, I I didn't, didn't see or hear, or, you know. You're just in the zone. No, I was in the zone, and, and I said, okay, now I know what this place is. Right. Now I know what the zone is, and, and you know, don't think. Whatever you do, don't think. Yeah, don't think, and it'll it'll come out really good. Amazing. Okay, yeah. I'll just do that. I'll just do that for the rest of my life, and, and everything will be fine. <laughs> don't think from me. Yeah, don't think. Yeah, that's, it's a real, it's a big. That is a big thing. Yeah, it is. Which and music, you, man? You, but you have to do all the preparations first. Right. Yeah, you have to you have to make sure everything works. You have to get the best sound you can get, and then you then you take that right on out. Yeah, and, and do it for the people, and, they, and and it works out really good. And also for Curtis Mayfield or Jackson Brennan or Dolly Parton, of course, you know. Yeah, and they they will they they like that. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with Raya Cooter? Like, I'm obviously a big Raya Cooter fan as well, but um, 
you've had a pretty long standing thing with him where, you know, you guys yeah. have made live records together. You've, you've been on albums of his and the soundtracks. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how you guys connected and like found a way to work together. Cause you know, a lot of the, it's some of it's similar territory. You don't do the same thing as he does, but, but it's in the same ballpark. So maybe talk a little bit about that and your experiences, particularly with the soundtrack stuff. I'd love to hear about the soundtrack sessions. The, the uh, I'd known Rye for, for a long time it, from the Banjo Fiddle contest and then from the Ashgrove and, mm-hmm. and he, he was the bottleneck guy and the finger pick guitar guy. And I asked, oh, this, you know, and then he was also that, uh, the first, uh, uh, electric Rycooter album with, uh, with that Stratocaster with the, you know, with the, the Cooter caster. Yeah. Yeah. The Cooter caster, you know, and, and I said, this, you know, this, this is really good. This is, this is fantastic. And played in this band and did all this stuff. And, and we played the no nukes concert and, oh, yeah. and, uh, and did all that stuff. I had done at that point, I had done a couple of, um, movie sessions uh-huh. for him and in, uh, and Walter Hill. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. The long riders and, yeah, and, uh, and all that stuff. We did that, <clears throat> you know, just, you know, by the seat of our pants can you tell me like what what that means? Like, did you have the movie playing in front of you, and you were? Yeah, yeah, and we played to it. off of that, yeah, okay. yeah. We, we the movie would be playing, and we played to it. Improvising, or or were you playing playing pieces? No, it all always improvising, and then and then if he hit on something that was really good, he says, "Oh, Rye would say, oh, do that. Okay, do that a bunch. Okay, I said, okay. So he he went into the scoring of those movies basically with a blank slate. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, okay. He said, "Yeah, he said he would say, you know, oh, we got this one, one thing for for the uh, for Geronimo. Say, let's let's take Geronimo. I said we have this one thing, and I I started to to write a whole a bunch of different things around this, uh-huh. based on on Methodist hymnal. Oh." So you, you go in the, you go in there and you play. We went into the sound stage and they had all these these regular musicians. Yeah. Sid Page and, and he had a string section and and all this stuff and they would play sh- like shape note singing, but with instruments and they yeah. would do all the brass. They they did this stuff. It was old sounding. Uh-huh. And then, then we do the, the string band things yeah. and they, they sounded old too. You know, he yeah. said, don't yeah. play bluegrass. Right. I remember that. I said, don't, he, he said, don't play bluegrass. <laughs> so I can, about when I was playing mandolin. So tricky. I, play, and I played, yeah, it, it's, it's different. It's a kind of different approach. And then with the long riders, that was one of those things where you sit and you watch the track and you'd play. Okay. Just go, yeah, go from this number right here. There would, there would be numbers on the screen up above. Go from this number to 2001, you know, at at the end end of the thing. So, you know, just play something, play something good and interesting in there. (laughs) Okay. And, and, and it'll work. What about instrument selection? Like, were you just picking randomly or did he say like, why don't you play the bazooki here or something? I, yeah, well, he, he knew exactly what he wanted. You know, he, he kind of <clears throat> checked things out. And, and then if it, it was, um, if it was something else, he, you know, I said, well, that'll work good. But bazooki is, has a little bit, you know, the strings aren't as tight right. as a mandolin. So bazooki will work really well here. Oh, Check okay. this out. So I would play it, and he would go. He said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's good. The octaves, <laughs> yeah. those octave strings on there. That's what we want." So, and I said, "Yeah." So we would use that instead of mandolin. Cool. And and then I then, then we got into all those things, and then we got into the the Turkish uh, classical instruments, the yali tambur and the tambur and the and saws and, and all of those things. And, and he said, this, we make use of these. Mm-hmm. This is 
good thing. I was also doing uh, soundtracks with James Horner at the same time. Which ones were you doing with him? Willow. Oh, there really? was there, Yeah, there was that, and there, yeah. there was a couple other things that I would do with James. That yeah. he, he was the soundtrack guy. Right, yeah. That's big time. So he, he called me up, and he said, come on over. And, and, and it was, it'd be a session where we look at the screen and play. Yeah. He says this, you know, and I also, uh, I remember going to England doing that. The same thing, look at the screen and play with this Irish traditional band. Yeah. And, uh, would James Horner say, play this, like give you a line to play or was he just like, play, be Dave? And No, he was, he said, go up the neck. You know, I said, oh, Okay, well, it's, it may not be in tune. Yes, uh, yeah, that's what I want. Okay, I want it not in tune. Okay, wow, that's good. And he he was he was a he was tremendous. That that whole soundtrack yeah. thing just kind of took off. And uh, and with Rye, it was <clears throat> kind of the same approach. Um, it, it was a different thing. In those days, you know, and I think uh, James heard that I had been doing stuff with Rye and he wanted that kind of thing. And the, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't know. I, I never know. Do you think Rye wanted you around because you were like in the same ballpark as him and it maybe made him feel more comfortable? Yeah, yeah. It, it, there could have been that too, really, because we, we came from the Ashgrove. And we would go every night and see the same people and, and, uh, you know, McCabe's guitar shop and all that yeah. stuff. And we would, um, we were kind of reading from the same hymnal, you know? Right. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. what about, what about Jack Nietzsche? Did he work with him on soundtracks? Yeah. Yeah. I worked with him on, on a couple of them. And what, what was uh, that like? Oh, uh, that was, that was wonderful. He, he would, uh, He'd use the same approach, and and then it would work out. Uh, sometimes it wouldn't work out, and he yeah. he would end up doing it on piano, you know. Okay. And, and he was great. It was wonderful working with Jack. He was he was uh, he's the same kind of thing. He he was he was one of those improvisational musicians. Yeah. Who could get all kinds of things out of there, you know? And and he would do, you know playing live to to the screen go from this number to this number okay in fact he he was one of the people who showed me how to do that oh cool okay yeah and he he was uh yeah he he, he knew how to do it the regular way conducting an orchestra and yeah because he was totally fluent in 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 orchestras and yeah that was his vibe it, oh yeah scoring and doing and all that stuff i mean if you look at a score you know for this or for that. And, and, you know, and he'd give me a, a sheet of paper that said, you know, it just had a clef on it. Yeah. It, it was a piece of music paper that just had a clef <laughs> on it. And, it. And, and, a, and a key, and the key was, was D. Yeah. So, you know, and it said Weisenborn. And I went, <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. You know. <laughs> Blank page. Right on. Yeah, that's my kind of shit. That, well, I can do that. Did, it, did you ever show up to a session and have somebody stick a, a chart in front of you with notes that they wanted you to play? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. How'd you deal with that? That was Mike Post. He's a, Mike Post is an old friend, and he's, he did the Hill Street Blues. And, sure, yeah. And, you know, all kinds of, of television scores and stuff. And he, he and I go way, way, way back. Really? And... and uh, he taught himself how to how to do all that stuff, Amazing. and he got an orchestrator and and started working with him, Pete Carpenter, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he 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 would you know I I go into every once in a while I go you know play the fiddle on on something and play it all scratchy and weird and and he says I remember this time he said he stopped the the orchestra and he'd say Mister Lindley. Don't you like what we wrote for you? <laughs> I said, I don't know what this stuff is. You know, he, he started laughing. He had stopped, you know, a little bit. 
So he, and Mike, it was really wonderful working with Mike. I, I did some soundtracks and stuff with him, and it was for TV yeah. music. And yeah. and it was very difficult to, to go from one world to another. Right, totally different approach from what you were used to, I guess. It's a totally different approach, and it, and it's like, it, it's it's just as good, if not better. Right. When you, when you write the stuff out and you want it to be a certain thing, and and he was familiar with what I played, and and he would write it, and it wasn't, it wasn't alien. It wasn't, and it wasn't like impossible to play. Yeah. But but it was, uh, and he knew what to do. And there were a lot of times where, where I, I make it all the way through, and I eat, you know, and it worked fine. Uh-huh. So it, it was just that one time I I remember, you know, the guy you coming like, around. I don't like what we wrote for you. Yeah, you got a guy come around. He's got an armload of the, of these sheets, yeah. and they have all these golf clubs on them. And he sticks one in front of you, and I said, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> I don't do that. That's not part of my job description. So, I, and I, I said, "Oh, let me try. I'll try it." <clears throat> so I would I would kind of do stuff, and I'd I do it different. Yeah. 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 He wouldn't like that, Mike. That's hilarious. No, no, no. I, I, it, it had to be the regular thing. He says, it's easy. You can do it. Uh-huh. You know, I, I said, really? I said, I, I'm old. You know, <laughs> it's, I, I, yeah, I, I automatically kind of close things off when someone says it's easy. Right, you know, right. Oh, it's easy. Easy for you, asshole. You can do that. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do that. You know, and it was one of those things where I, I decided at one point in my life to go the other way, mm-hmm. which was the, uh, you know, Nachati Chelek. I want to, I want to learn to play like Munir Bashir. Mm-hmm. That's who I want to learn to play like. I want to learn to play like Munir Bashir with no time, no drums and just the instrument, just the oud. Yeah. I'll do, I'll do that for a few years. And, and that was one of those things, you know, uh, and, and, and sitting there, you know, with the world's greatest French horn player, this guy had played with the LA Philharmonic. He was a monster, this guy. And he, he, he ended up playing things <clears throat> and it was just phenomenal. And he, mm-hmm. he, he came by, he came by and said, it's okay. That's, you know, I, I know what you're doing. You know, I mean, this, this guy was really cool. He helped you through it. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was interested. He's interested in the folk process. You know, a lot of people, the, the folk process and then the, the sight reading and, right. and all that. It's yeah, yeah. You do have to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, man. Um, if you have time, I would love to talk to you just a bit about your, um, your duo partnerships with the, the, all those great records with Hanny Nasser and Wally Ingram later. Um, those for me, like, as I was saying, like I, you know, I, I heard the El Rayo acts and that was a big thing for me, but, but as I was getting into playing those instruments that you play and like learning those things, I first heard that live Hanny Nasser record and it totally like, yeah. cha- changed my life. Um, oh, wow. can you tell me about just like what made you want to go out on, on tour with somebody like that, where you found them and, and what your intention was with that? You hear him play, you know, you hear yeah. Hanny play. He came over to the house one day <clears throat> and he was playing with Ian Beardsley. He's a flamenco guitarist. Yeah, and, sure. and, and I, this, I said, this is really good. And I said, do you want to go out on the road? He said, oh yeah. Yeah, I want to go out on the road. And so we went out and did gigs. And I, I, I said, you, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I showed him a bunch of things. I showed him the New Orleans stuff and the reggae stuff. And he and he could play it. Yeah. I said, oh, that's good. So we went out on the road for, for a few years. Was that was that like four or five years or something you were, you did stuff with him? Yeah, more like four years, three three okay. or four years with Hanny. And then, and then I... I hooked up with with Wally Ingram, and that was more like what I kind of intended in the first place was kind of pots and pans and 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 right. that yeah, kind he was of, hitting all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, and I, I said, yeah, that's good, that's good. Okay. Just do that, and then I'll <laughs> I'll play and you play, and then and it'll be good. Was he a guy that you knew from playing around L.A.? That's where he's from. Right? Yeah, he had, 
he had played with Jackson, and I remember oh, okay. uh, I remember a, a live concert where he he played with and Barbara Kay and Pat McDonald played, and I said, "This guy's really good." He also played with Jackson. He sat in with Jackson, played absolutely appropriate stuff, and he played appropriate stuff with the Timbuk Three. And I said, "You want to go out on the road?" And he said, "Yeah, that'd yeah. be good." And and so he and I. You know, I, I called him one day and said, you want to go out on the road? And he said, yeah. And so we, we did. Right on. And it worked out real good. It sure did. Well, those records are so great sounding too. Like, did you, was it always intended for it to just be a live thing? Like you never did studio records with either of those guys, right? Yeah. I well, the the live recording of me and Hanny, um, that was... Um, yeah, I, I just said, well, let's record this. And then I listened to it and I said, this is a record. Yeah. And then with Wally, it was more a studio thing. And he and I would do, we'd do it live and then I'd put extra, we'd put extra stuff on it. Oh, right. Okay. The, that's the Twango Bango record. Yeah. It was all, all of that stuff was always recorded live and it worked out. It worked out really well. And, and then we'd overdub stuff. I mean, I would overdub, you know, and I, I do it usually with an electric guitar with a Dan Electro. Oh, okay. So over top of the live recording, you you overdubbed. Yeah, and, cool. and there was that, and then we would do the whole song. We if it was a Weisenborn thing, I, I mean, I'd record Weisenborn, and then he would record drums, and we'd be in the same room, and it and, and work out really good. And so, in the last few years, I know you've mostly been doing solo stuff. Is that just a like another choice that you made that where you you felt like? you were getting your point across better or was it like, I know you've had ear problems too. Was it like a volume issue or where? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a tinnitus thing where it's a, you know, constant ringing in both ears. And, and that's what I, I, it's, it's really pervasive in the, in the industry. I mean, Jeff Beck and, and uh, Pete Townsend and and Eric Clapton and, and, uh, a whole lot of different people that played really loud at yeah. one time. You know, we did all that and, and you know, and, and then now we have issues. So that's, it kind of goes with the territory, you know, yeah. I, I, and I look at it like that, but it's also, you go out, you go out and, and you can get your point across better when you do it by yourself. Yeah. You can, you know, and there's no conflicting, thing about, you know, keep them dancing and doing right. all this stuff. Yeah. You don't have to do that. And they, they sit there, uh-huh. they sit and they, they like it a lot, but they, they sit there and they, they check it out. And then, and I'm playing a little bit differently now too. So, mm-hmm. so are you actively in the middle of touring right now? Or are you taking a break or what's your, no, I, I took a break for about a year and I, I'm, I'm about to go out and do, do a few things and, and see how it works. And, yeah. And uh, it's kind of testing the waters, and and I think it'll work pretty well. So I, I may fire it up again and, and and go out and do the whole thing. So do you have to adjust like what your like your rig and stuff to be just like on a quieter setting overall? Yeah. Okay. Constant adjustment. Yes. yes. It's what it is. Yeah. And the uh, all the different tunes. I've, I've written some original stuff, and I'm I'm doing all that, and I'm okay. right. I'm right in the middle of a CD and, uh, oh. I, I've done seven tunes. I got to do seven more. And then, you well, know, can you tell me about that record? Oh, well, it's just in keeping it biblical. See, <laughs> I've done seven tunes yeah. and then do seven more. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, solo stuff or is it a, a band or what's the, it's solo stuff. Well, it's both, you know, oh, okay. it, it, it depends on what the song needs to have, but, but I, I'm, keeping all the tunes open, you know, this, you know, maybe two of them will be completely just guitar, you know, and then, then maybe, uh, I'll do, um, a Taksim on, on the Oud and, and, uh, one on the bazooki. And I've taken a bazooki and, and put, uh, sauce frets on it. Wow. Yeah. So that's, so instead of four, instead of three strings, you have four strings. Right. And, and you can... Uh, lower? Like if there's a lower set? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay. So it's, it's like two instruments uh, on one. 
Right. And, you know, and that's the way I play it. So there's that, and then there's the Weissenborns, and, and uh, I've, I've got a couple of other instruments here that are, um, you know, <clears throat> and I may do some guitar stuff. I may, I may just do the, some of these songs on guitar. Beautiful. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, I think I think it'll work out pretty well. I, I have a couple of, of guitars that are real good. I got a a uh, a um, saga. It's a copy of uh, uh, Mario Nakaferi. Uh-huh. Um, guitar of the Django Reinhardt played. You know, sure, yeah. yeah there, there are two of them. There's the Oval Sound Hall, and then there's the the D Shape Sound Hall. I have the D Shape Sound Hall one, and I, I've been. Uh, you know, checking it out, and there's the that's the that's the Yali Tambor, okay. which is a banjo. Amazing. So it's back to the banjo. Good, full circle, man. Yeah, yeah, it works out good. Chumbush, and then there's a lot of Chumbush on this this album. Chumbush is a is a twelve string fretless banjo. Right. And it, um, it it's tuned like an oud, and and you kind of play it like an oud, and it and it really sounds wonderful. It just sounds great. So I've I'm, seen I'm, I've seen you play that before. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's a it's a monster. Right that thing. Yeah, man. I could talk to you all day, but I, I I can't thank you enough for for taking the time, man. Yeah, it's 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 a pleasure. It's, you you know you seem to know what you're talking about, and that that's the main thing because sometimes. <laughs> I do it uh, an interview or uh, kind of talk or something like that, and, and the person doesn't know what they're talking about, but you do. There's so. nothing worse than that. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you, man. Thank you so much for listening, folks and music nerds out there. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode with the mighty David Lindley as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. It was a real treat having him on, and uh, I hope you will be back next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, B.C. for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers